So good to be able to come together this morning on this first day of the week and to offer our heartfelt worship and praise unto the great God of heaven. As we're gathered here at the Peeping Congregation this morning, we're certainly delighted to appreciate the great blessing of God upon each of us and the privileges ours to come together today. Certainly, as you keep in mind about the Personal Evangelism Seminar, again, we've be already been making some announcements about that. But keep in mind, please, about a month now, November the 3rd and 4th, Friday and Saturday, and we'll have more to say about that by way of some specific details coming up here very, very soon. Rumors about the Church of Christ. That's the title I've given to the lesson this morning, and for the next few moments, let's think about some rumors. Things you probably you have heard, issues that maybe you have had to address by way of conversation with others. As you and I begin the lesson, we're going to do so with these introductory remarks. Maybe it's interesting to notice, as you start at the very top, a rumor can be a very hurtful thing. Maybe you've had someone say rumors about you, things that weren't true, but nonetheless, this particular statement began to appear and it began to spread by virtue of gossip or other things. Once you became aware of it, you know how much it hurt. And you perhaps were very much shaken by not only the untruth of it, but that others whom you know and love believed it. Rumors about the church of Christ, that second comment. I thought it might be wise merely to start with a definition. When you and I use the word rumor... This is basically what we mean. It's general talk that itself is not based on knowledge. It's an unconfirmed story or report that might be said to be in general circulation. All of that doesn't surprise us. We have a sense of what a rumor really is. But of course, you and I know there are some rumors about the church of Christ. Let's study about some of them this morning. As we do that, rumor number one is this one. Rumor number one is this one. The Church of Christ is a denomination. Perhaps you have even been faced with that in either conversation or in filling out a particular piece of document or paper. It might ask, of what denomination are you? And one of the choices is the Church of Christ. Let's consider some of these things. First of all, by definition, the word denomination, the very utilization, the very employment of that word means the following. It means to distinguish or to separate by virtue of naming. You can look that up in a dictionary. That's the basic thrust and the general sense of what that word means. Therefore, note that next comment. That simply suggests then that all the elements which are therefore named are of equally acceptable rank and value. That's the impetus. That's the logical and only conclusion about the virtue of utilizing that word denomination in that way. No wonder then it's perhaps fair. Let's add in some Bible discussion. Is the church of Christ a denomination? In Matthew 16 beginning in verse 13, our Savior had arrived into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and He asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And of course, they began to answer because they had heard the statements and the declarations that various people had made. Some say John the Baptist, some Jeremiah, some Elijah, some one of the prophets. But then the Lord asked this, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter stated, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In reply to that statement, our Savior made these unforgettable words. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In the midst of that discussion, the Lord Himself said, I will build my church. And that led me to that comment. How many churches did our Savior promise to build? The answer is one. Notice two different ways in which the grammar puts that thought upon us. First of all, he said, my church, in the sense that it belongs to him. But secondly, the word church that he utilized was absolutely singular. Churches would have been plural, but he said, church, I'm going to build one church. The fact then that the master promised and very definitively to build one church, leads us to note this. We should have reason then to suspect there's something about that rumor. To bundle the church of Christ as a denomination means the church is on equal satisfactory footing with every religious Christian denomination you can imagine. But the Lord never promised to build a host of individual Christian denominations. He promised to build one church. To that, let's add this. As the Lord reached that night before He was crucified, in John chapter 17, that real Lord's Prayer. You may recall in verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, the Lord so earnestly prayed for the unity of His believers. And He said it like this, I pray, Father, that they may be one in Me, even as I am one with Thou. He prayed that those that would be His followers would be absolutely united and be one to the same degree that He is one with the Father. May I ask, does that sound as if the possible understanding of modern denominations would fit into that? This group teaches something different from this one. This one has no fellowship with this one. Does that sound as if they're one? There's no possible logic or reason I can think of that would permit in any way to imagine that they're one. But yet Jesus said all of those that would be His followers, He prayed that they'd be one. Let's add to that this. In Ephesians 4 verse 4, in that tremendous platform and presentation of unity then in Christ, Paul said there is one body, and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And that list of seven began with this. There is one body. Now, it isn't difficult to understand that language, is it? Whatever that word body represents, there's only one of them. And thankfully, we're told in the New Testament what that body represents. 
in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, as well as Colossians 1.18, perhaps most notably. Let's, in fact, give thought to each one of them. In the Ephesians passage, "...and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all." Therefore, on that occasion, the church was said to be the body. In the Colossians passage, it reads like this. Colossians 1, verse number 18. As Paul wrote to that church in Colossae, having just highlighted the nature of the kingdom in verse 13, he said, And he, that's Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. One more time, in a very careful and dramatic, grammatical way, Paul said the church is the body. When we put that together with that Ephesians 4 verse 4 passage, then we know there's one church. No means of consideration will ever change what the Word of God has decreed on those points. There is one, and therefore, can we not then say, those that would be members of that body are admonished and, yea, even commanded that they would believe and practice as one. Let's begin in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 where this amazing statement is found. I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. It is unthinkable that modern denominationalism can be consistent with that verse. The inspired apostle said we need to speak the same thing, be of the same mind, same judgment. There is no way modern denominationalism fits into that discussion. Jesus purchased one church. He built only one. And in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preached the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Isn't that a passage that reminds those of that day, Timothy, you must be cautious. There's going to come a time when they won't endure sound doctrine. Notice Paul didn't say, well, it's all right to appreciate. They just see it a little bit differently. Paul warned Timothy, any veering away from the doctrine means those are lost. And you must not veer from it. And so as we come to the bottom of that slide, I've tried to highlight the first rumor. The church of Christ, though some may say it's a denomination, that isn't so. That's just a rumor. It isn't true. Jesus built one church. He founded one church with His precious blood, and He maintains and encourages those that would be believers in Him to be a member of that beautiful, wonderful, age-lasting, and lovely body. What about a second rumor? What else might you and I have heard that is a rumor concerning the church, but it isn't true? Rumor number two, maybe you've heard the name Alexander Campbell. I think that each of us have heard that on occasion in some rather derogatory ways. You're just a Campbellite, aren't you? Well, let's spend a few moments reflecting upon this rumor. Again, the rumor goes something like this. Don't you know the Church of Christ was started by Alexander Campbell? 
Let's see if there's any truth to that. Let's start at the top of that slide first, highlighting at least a little bit about the life and times of Alexander Campbell. It would do well for you and I to appreciate very strongly when did Alexander Campbell live? There really was a man by that name, no doubt about that. But would you note this? He was born in 1788 A.D., and he died in 1866 A.D., shortly after the Civil War. Let that sink in just a moment. 1788 to 1866. That leads me to note this. You and I know very well that there were churches of Christ existed long before 1788. Doesn't that highlight, among other things, Alexander Campbell did not start the church of Christ. He didn't. He didn't. You and I cannot emphasize that enough. As much as we might lift high the banner of the perspective and the ideology of that man, and we appreciate the work in the faith that he did, he did not found the church of Christ. In fact, the church existed millennia before Alexander Campbell was ever born. Let's note the following. In Romans chapter 16, verse 16, in the very New Testament we read, the churches of Christ salute you. Notice the church of Christ existed in the days that you and I read about in Romans 16. And that occurred over 1,700 years before Alexander Campbell was ever born. We ought not then allow such a rumor to persist and you and I not at least try to help the person understand that's only a rumor. Whoever may have shared it with them and whatever means by which it was stated, it's not true. Alexander Campbell did not begin the Church of Christ. You might notice that a rather poignant question was posed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13. We stated just a moment ago in light of rumor number one that again the church of Christ is no denomination. Now we're adding a, an additional thought to that. Alexander Campbell did not found or start or establish the church of Christ. Those verses we noted earlier, Jesus said, I will build my church. And notice that possessive adjective, my, it belongs to him. It does not nor has it ever belonged to Alexander Campbell with a statement made then that our Savior promised to found it. This famous question is asked, Is Christ divided? 1 Corinthians 1.13 Is Christ divided? Of course, Paul in the context affirms the answer is no. Who died for us? Alexander Campbell didn't do it. In whose name are we baptized? It is not in the name of Alexander Campbell. We are baptized in the name of Christ, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It is Christ who, in fact, is the head of the church. And isn't it still true, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. To those things might we add this. It's at this point that some are perhaps knowledgeable enough to admit something to else. And I'd like to at least spend a moment and ask you to consider it. There are some who would then say, Sure enough, there was a church of Christ 
in the days of the Bible, but then it ceased to exist. It fell out of existence as men apostatized, and for a long, long time there was no such thing, and then Alexander reestablished it. They might say that to you. Is that true? Is that a reasonable way to look at it? Perhaps this example will be helpful. What about the example of Ezra in the days of the Old Testament? The Feast of Tabernacles was something that God commanded of the children of Israel. You and I can read about that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we find in that that the people were to dwell in booths for a week in the seventh month of the year. And as they did that, it was to be a constant reminder of their travail and difficulty in the exodus from Egypt in their journey to the Promised Land. It was to be an annual memorial to that, to that reality. But the fact is, as we study the Old Testament, we come to realize the children of Israel stopped keeping that feast. And they went hundreds of years and never built any booths. They didn't dwell in them, at least as a community of people. But then the day came in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra, upon reading the law, he noticed we're supposed to be dwelling in booths and we haven't been doing it. Question. Was it then Ezra's idea suddenly to reinstate something that had been known a thousand years earlier? Could it be perceived that this was some new ideology, some new commandment? Of course not. He was just putting into place what God had commanded in the days of Moses hundreds of years earlier. That's all that Alexander Campbell sought to do. Upon study of the New Testament, he understood the reality and nature of the church Jesus built. And over the course of time, men had become unfaithful. The church had lost fervor and excitement in the character that God intended it to have. And Alexander Campbell simply taught to turn men back to the Bible. He didn't start the church. He simply wished to put in place to call men back to that blessed body that Jesus founded. Let's close that slide then with this bold statement. Again, in light of this second rumor, the church of Christ was not founded nor established by Alexander Campbell. That rumor is untrue, although again, some still like to believe it. What about rumor number three? What else might you have heard concerning the church of Christ? I suspect it's not that unusual. You may have heard this. You Church of Christ folks just don't believe in the Old Testament. Well, let's then spend a few moments reflecting on that supposed rumor. What could be said about the nature of the Church of Christ? Now first, we might immediately give note to this. Why even might someone consider making a statement like that? You and I, as faithful believers in the Word of God, recognize that we are commanded by the God of heaven to rightly divide the Word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, to never go beyond what's written, 1 Corinthians 4.6, and therefore you and I try to be mindful of and very careful relative to what laws were written for us in terms of things we must keep. And you and I understand there's a powerful division the Old Testament is worthy of our study. 
Romans 15, 4 still reads, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And therefore we seek to appreciate the principles and learn the appropriate lessons of the Old Testament. But we don't live beneath that law. Paul expressly said that law is nailed to the cross. Colossians 2 verse 14. But yet there still are those who by way of rumor say, y'all just don't believe in the Old Testament. Let's fill in a few details. May I suggest that a fine way to begin that kind of consideration would be in Hebrews 8 verse 13 as well as Hebrews chapter 10 verse number 9. In that very passage, the inspired writer pointed out that there is an old covenant and a new one. They're different. In that he saith an old covenant, or in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which is old waxeth away and vanisheth away. To say it that way reminds us there is a rather biblical distinction between covenants and we just try to honor that distinction. Didn't Paul directly say in terms of some who were striving to live under the old law, you are fallen from grace, Galatians 5 verse 4. So if we today try to live beneath that old law of Moses as a law we must keep to be right in the sight of God, we have fallen from grace. We again aren't trying to do anything other than what the Bible presents before us. Therefore, look at the next point. There's something dramatic about that old law. In Colossians 2 verse 14, the following description is given. That law which was against us and contrary to us, it was nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. Did you notice it was against us? That's the very language of inspiration. And not only that, it was nailed to the cross of our Savior. One of the things that you and I might appreciate about those nails driven into the hands and feet of our Master was not only was His body nailed to that cross, but that old law of Moses and the patriarchal law was too. It's a fascinating thing to notice. Those laws were being set aside so that a better one could be put in place a superior one, a superseding brilliant law. And that's the whole point of chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. Let's add to that the following. Jesus on more than one occasion said something about this. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, for I came not to destroy but to fulfill them. And it was so dramatic, he said, Not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. You see, the law of God cannot be broken, John 10, 35. And so that old law had to last until the God of heaven replaced it, took it out of the way and put something else in place. And that he's done. You and I today believe a lot in the Old Testament. We just don't believe it's law beneath which we live today. The Old Testament's real. The things we read about in Genesis all the way to Malachi, those were actual events concerning things prior to the days of Israel and even descriptive of those days. One more thing. The Old Testament is exceedingly valuable. 
valuable for the following considerations. May I ask you to note this? Isn't it true there would be dramatic parts of the New Testament we would struggle to understand were we not knowledgeable of those Old Testament matters that were being referenced? Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and following, for example. Here, that old law was under discussion, but Paul said, it's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What I learned in that old law, Paul said, led me directly to Jesus, the Son of God. It pointed me in that direction. It led me to that eventuality. And therefore, when Paul said, when I obeyed the gospel, I was only doing what that old law led me to do. It's tragic that there are many of our day and over the centuries past which have used the old law as an oppositional matter to the new. The old law leads you to it. It fulfilled. The, old, the new is fulfilled by it, or the old is fulfilled by the new. Perhaps one more passage. In that 2 Timothy 3.16 passage, probably one that's so very familiar to all of us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. When Paul said all Scripture, he was including, of course, those Old Testament Scriptures. They were given of God. And for that day and time, they were, of course, needful for appreciation. Oh, how you and I honor the Old Testament, but just not as law beneath which we live today. And all, I suppose all of us are happy about that. Would we enjoy trying to fulfill those animal sacrifices? Would you enjoy trying to carry out the specifics and the details of those things? Even as a convert to the, to the old Jewish system, would you enjoy going to Jerusalem three times a year? Would you enjoy having to go to the altar of burnt offering there and offer a lamb or a bullock or something else because of sin you'd committed? And yet that's what they were required to do. Not that they were suggested, God required it of them. Today, you and I live beneath the blood co covenant that is the one Jesus put in place. Jesus said in Matthew 26 verse 28, this blood of the new covenant is shed for many for the remission of sins. Talking about His blood. These rumors so far probably are things you and I have heard, but it does bring us to closing that slide with another bold statement. This rumor about the church of Christ not believing in the Old Testament, that isn't true. We do believe it. It's just not the law beneath which we live today. In fact, we learn much from it. We lift high the appreciation of it. And we encourage one and all to learn from it so that we can be motivated in comfort, Romans 15, 4. What about a fourth rumor? What else might you and I have heard about rumors concerning the church? The Church of Christ, perhaps you've heard, doesn't believe in music and worship. Well, why don't we give some thought, thinking again about the nature of that assertion, and as always, asking, what does the Bible have to say about it? As you start at the top, perhaps we can begin with this rather interesting statement. 
First of all, the church of Christ does believe in music and worship. It's just that we believe in the music that God has authorized and no other music. And therefore, that leads us to rather carefully and also rather notably appreciate the following. I'd like to ask you to think about one additional thought. Acts 20 verse 7. If the question were to be asked, how often do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Every one of us know very well what the answer to that is. We know it because of one verse in the New Testament. One verse, that's all. That entire conclusion is predicated on Acts 20 verse 7. And certainly under the inspiration of that verse, we are easily able to answer the question, it's every first day of the week. But one verse has given us the answer. Now let's turn our attention to the music. So where, what do we find about music? If there was only one verse, that would be enough. But God has identified the music of worship that He wants in no less than five New Testament passages. In other words, five times as many as tell us how often to partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet, we have been faithful to keep this for nearly 2,000 years on the right day of the week. And yet, men have begun to question and veer off and proceed in other conclusions wherein God five times as often has said what music He wants in worship. That's a tragedy that men have reached the conclusions that are separate from the truth. Next point. In Ephesians 5 verse 19, let's let God specify what music He wants. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That passage presents to us this truth. They, notice, were singing to one another. So that means solos and such as that is not authorized. Having one or two people singing to the rest of us, that would in fact be a violation of that verse. All of us need to be singing, one to the other, and not only that. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Some of those might be direct statements or quotations from the Word of God. Others may be Christian songs based on those truths. But he also says, making melody in your heart. The original word that's used there tells us what instrument, if you please, is being played. It's the heart. It's the heart and no other. And so if I'm playing a piano, an organ, a banjo, a harpsichord, or anything else, I have violated that passage because the Lord didn't authorize any of that. The instrument and the only instrument that He authorized to be played as a part of the music of worship is the human heart. The Colossians passage in some ways is even stronger. Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Singing is highlighted, but you'll notice it is that singing that makes available and possible these things. Whatever this music is, it teaches. There isn't a musical instrument on earth that can teach. A person may play it, but the instrument doesn't teach anything. And yet, whatever the music is there, it is something that teaches. Clearly, our vocal music does. Those words encourage us because we sing with spirit and with understanding. 
1 Corinthians 14, 15. Notice also that our singing admonishes each other. Perhaps there's someone, and maybe you and I have often been there, when we feel a bit down. Things through the past week have been challenging, and yet we come together, and as faithful brothers and sisters, we sing those songs together. We lift each other up. We encourage one another. We motivate each other. That's one thing singing does. No wonder in James chapter 5 it says, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. At that point you may notice, Hebrews 2 verse 12 makes this statement, In the midst of the church will I sing praises to thee. The church, we do have music in it, it's just not playing a mechanical instrument. The music that we have is what God has authorized. And we thrill at the thought of singing praises to Him because in the midst of the church, that's what we're told to do. Hebrews 2 verse 12. Anything else. And again, those rumors that people like to share, the church of Christ doesn't believe in music, oh, that isn't true. We believe in music all right. But it's a cappella vocal music because that's what God has authorized and no other. And we're happy to just do what God has said, aren't we? So far today, as we have looked at these rumors, I hope you've been led to appreciate that one by one as we've looked at them, we're going to look at some more of them next Sunday morning. Maybe there are more rumors that have already come to your mind, but we will look at a sequel, if you please, to this lesson then. At this point, let's pause to say this. Those rumors lead us back to the lesson text. You may have noted that as it was read in our hearing earlier today, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou holdest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. None of us are happy. None of us are willing to let our faith rest on a rumor. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And today we've studied the truth on these various subjects apart from the rumors that you may have heard. It might be that there's someone in the audience today who upon the analysis of your life has reached the conclusion that all isn't well. Maybe as an alien sinner, you've come to realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He shed His blood for you, and He is making it possible as long as you'll come to Him for you to live with Him forever in a beautiful place called heaven. But of course, you must be a child of His to appreciate those blessings to yourself. The New Testament says you do that by obeying the gospel initially. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, commanded of us in John 8, 24. Repent of your sins. Commanded of us in Luke 13, 5. Confess audibly the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior. Commanded of us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And finally, be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Upon so doing, your charge is to live faithfully until death, Revelation 2, verse 10. And so, if you have become a Christian, but perhaps today you aren't faithful... You've wandered away from the fold of faith. You've stepped in the pathways of the devil rather than following the footsteps of Jesus. We would be delighted to pray to God on your behalf, but you must, of course, continue to believe in Christ, repent of those sins, and confess them. And if you'll do that, 
Our prayer to God will lead to His forgiveness of you. Today, if we could help anybody in any of these ways, we'd be honored, delighted to help you and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.